Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 through 23. Paul says, uh, for in everything, sorry, let's try again. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, meaning in Christ, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were, were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. When we left off last week, we had just begun to look at this section, and we began to see that Jesus' death on the cross was for the whole world. Now, we got to be careful not to build the doctrine from one passage of Scripture, but from the whole of Scripture. Especially since in this passage here, the all things that he's referring to refer to much more than people. If we have time tonight, we'll get into that. But when Paul said he was reconciling all things to himself, it's more than just people. You can even see that by the fact that he chooses, chooses the word things. All right. Like I say, if there's time, we'll come back to the all things. But I don't think we'll have time tonight because what we're going to do, though, is we're going to examine the whole of Scripture to see that the Bible does teach in many, many places, as you look at the whole of Scripture, that Jesus' death on the cross was for the whole world. So there's a lot of people out there today that teach that Jesus died only for those who are going to be saved. And they say he died only for the elect. And they use a lot of human reasoning to come up with this doctrine. But unfortunately, it doesn't line up with the whole of Scripture. And what we're going to look tonight, and, and, and you may be surprised, because I, I know I have been in the process of studying this, that the amount of Scripture that there really is that deals with this topic is bigger than I thought it was. It really is. And I won't even give you all the scriptures that I found. So let's start right now with John chapter 1, verse 29. <clears throat> like I said, when we left off last week, we looked at how at that moment on the cross, Jesus' death reconciled all things to God. That doesn't mean everybody's going to heaven. But at that moment, the sins of all mankind were covered and were paid for through the blood of Jesus Christ. Now in John chapter 1, look at verse 29. The next day he, meaning John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who what? Takes away the sin of who? The world. Go to 1 John. That's the Gospel of John. Go all the way back by Revelation. Look at 1 John chapter 2 and look at verse 2. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, John says this, He, meaning Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of who? The whole world. The whole world. Go to 1 John chapter 4. Look at verse 14. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Now, a lot of times they'll say, well, it, when it says all, all doesn't mean all. These passages, you can see, aren't saying all. They're saying the world. Now, I had a debate with a man today, actually, after I finished preaching at this place uh, at this, this, uh, this, today at noon. The man comes up and he wanted to debate the whole concept of Jesus dying for the whole world. He believed Jesus only died for the people that are going to be saved. And I told him, I said, I will discuss this with you on the condition that you only use Scripture, not human logic and reasoning. Not if A equals B, then B equals C, but just use Scripture. And if you use just Scripture, you're going to realize, even though we don't fully understand it, 
The Bible teaches that at that moment that Jesus died on the cross, his, his death covered and paid for the sins of the entire world. There's more. Go to the Gospel of John again. Go back to John chapter 4 and look at verses 39 through 42. In John chapter 4, verse 39, it says, Many Samaritans from that town believed in him. This is after his discussion with the woman at the well. And then she went back into the town and told everybody about Jesus. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed, again, we, how many times are you going to see it? The Savior of the world. Now go to John chapter 12. Look at verse 32. <clears throat> John chapter 12, verse 32. And I, Jesus said, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. You see it? Now, we've got to deal with something. And John, we're not going to take time to turn there, but if you look over at John chapter 6, verses 44 and 45, Jesus says this. He says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. And then in verse 45, it says this. As it says in the prophets, they all will be taught by God. Whoever listens comes to me. Do you see that? Jesus said, when I'm lifted up, meaning put on the cross, I will draw all men to myself, all people to myself. And then he goes on later and he says, no one can come unless the father draws them first. By the way, all people are drawn. Whoever listens comes. I've said this before, but I'll say it again. Those of you that have raised teenagers, is there a difference between them hearing you and listening? Yeah. The world hears. The Bible teaches without question that there's no one without excuse. Don't waste any time in your Sunday school classes. What about those who have never heard? The Bible teaches there's no such person. Everyone hears in some way or another, whether through creation or his conscience being written in their hearts in Romans chapter 2. All the way through scripture, right in this passage we're even looking at, where Paul said, this gospel which has been preached in all creation. The Bible teaches, though, that not everybody gets the same amount of light. We have to be faithful to scripture and know that some people receive more light than others. We live in a part of the world where the gospel is, is very easily spread. We got Christian radio stations and churches everywhere, and a lot of people get to hear in this part of the world. Other parts don't hear as much. Don't think that everybody gets drawn equally. The Bible does not teach that. But interestingly enough, if you were to be faithful to look at the scriptures, by the way, let me just take a little commercial here to deal with a few things that have been bothering me, and I just need to say something now. Um, we have learned to say certain things in Christendom over and over and over, and we don't realize it, but we Bible people have been using them out of context. I was at this one church and the pastor got up before I spoke and he said, as it says in the book of Matthew, that if two or more are gathered, he's there in the midst of us. So there's more of them than two. I had to get up right afterwards and say, I hate to say it, but if I was the only one here, would Jesus not be here? That passage isn't saying where two or more are gathered, then Jesus shows up. Actually, if you look at the context, it's dealing with church discipline. And, and, and God's saying, look, if the two of you are in agreement on this area of church discipline, I'm with you. But we keep saying we're two or more are gathered. That's not what the passage teaches. Because if you're sitting on an island by yourself, Jesus is there if you're a child of God. We keep saying a lot of things like that. I, I was at this church this past week and I, the last song right before I got up to preach, 
they started singing, Holy Spirit, rain down, Holy Spirit, rain down. And it's interesting. Uh, I actually was preaching from Acts chapter 10, where the Holy Spirit fell on the believers when Peter preached there in Cornelius's house. But before I went into the message, I had to clarify the fact that for believers, the Spirit of God does not fall on us anymore. He's come to indwell us and he's a, we're supposed to let him have control from within. The filling of the spirit is not some pouring out of the spirit. Too many people are running around trying to go to the place where the spirit of God's really being poured out right there right now. You got to go. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches as a command that we're to be filled or be under the control of the spirit. Yes, the spirit of God does fall upon those who are not believers as he comes to indwell them. But for us as believers, we don't need to sing Holy Spirit fall down. We don't even beg him to come. He's here. We need to let him have control. But over the years, without realizing it, little by little, we've fallen prey to all these little thoughts and doctrines that don't really match up with Scripture. Everybody hears. But not everybody hears in the same amount. And I'm, I went on that little tangent because of this. You know in the Bible where it talks about to whom much is given, much is required? You ever heard that one? To whom much is given, much is required. If you look at the context of that passage, it's actually tied to how much light you have received when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's right after Jesus talks about how it's going to be easier on the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than it will be for Capernaum because the Capernaum received more light. Jesus himself walked in their midst, did the miracles. Sodom and Gomorrah will be judged because of their sin and they will be punished because of their sin. They received some light. They didn't receive as much as Capernaum did. And God says it's going to be easier on the day of judgment for them than it will be for Capernaum. And to whom much is given, much will be required. You're not going to be judged when you stand before God. But actually, thank God, all of us won't be judged because of Jesus. But for the lost, they won't be judged on how much sin they've committed, but actually on account of how much light they received and whether or not they responded to it. That's important for us to understand. In this process of God's doing His work of salvation, the issue is at the moment of Jesus' death on the cross, when He said, it is finished, to telestai in the Greek, which is an accounting term that means paid in full, at that moment, don't let anybody fool you, Jesus' death accomplished salvation. If they'll receive it, as you'll see tonight, He paid for the sins of the whole world. Now, that's going to make a lot of other things that we've looked at in the scriptures make so much more sense. And hopefully we'll have time to get there. But go to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Yeah, God helps those who help themselves and even in the Bible. That's not a misquote. That's just making one up that's not there. <clears throat> 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 10. Look at what it says. Paul says, For to this end... We toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, listen closely, especially of those who believe. Did you catch that? Isn't that interesting? Why does the Bible say He's the Savior of everyone, especially of those who believe? Because what I'm about to show you now as we make a little detour here is the fact that there are many other scriptures that talk about how Jesus died for the whole world, but they also put in there a caveat. Just because Jesus' death on the cross through his blood paid for the sins of the whole world, past, present, and future, doesn't mean that everybody's automatically going to heaven. You do understand that, hopefully. 
there's actually too much of a movement now that say that has, some churches try to say that hell isn't real, or that if it is, you don't last there forever, you're just uh, extinguished after a period of time. That doesn't match up with the scripture. But the reason is, again, they're using human logic instead of scripture. They say, I actually, there's a preacher, and I'm not going to name the church, a preacher in this area, within the last 15 years, I have the tape recording of the sermon, who made the statement, that he just believes that God is so loving, he wouldn't punish someone for hell. So he believes now that hell is not lasting. If there is one, he said, it doesn't last forever. Yep. Preaching at a big church. Folks, let me just tell you, we need to know truth. And we need to be solid because a lot of people are out there spreading things that don't line up with the word of God. So go to first, uh, sorry, the Gospel of John. Gospel, Gospel of John, chapter 3. I, if I ask you to quote verse 16, most hopefully everybody here probably could because you've watched the football games. <laughs> but keep reading. Keep reading. John chapter 3, verse 16. Listen to verses 16, 17, and 18. Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he gave his... What about who did he love? The world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe, listen, is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Folks, did you hear what the scripture saying? That at the moment Jesus died on the cross, his blood accomplished salvation and forgiveness of the sins for the whole world. Yet, if you do not receive it in faith and believing faith, you are right now condemned. How can I be forgiven and condemned? Well, exactly. Go with me real quick to Matthew. There was a parable that Jesus told in Matthew chapter 18, that I'll be honest with you, for years has been giving me a bellyache until I really started to understand the depth of this concept we're dealing with here. In Matthew chapter 18, verses uh, 21 and following, it says, Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I don't say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed 10,000 talents. By the way, if you do the math on, and find out what this really is, this is literally like Jesus is making this parable up. It's like he used the word a gazillion billion. All right, seriously. Nowadays, if we would say a gazillion billion, you knew it's just an astronomical number you can't ever... That's literally what this is. He owed him a gazillion billion, and since he could not pay, duh... His master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I'll pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him, listen, and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, same way that he had. Have patience with me and I'll pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what, he had, what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. 
Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I have had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you not forgive your brother from your heart. Listen closely, folks. I got to be honest with you. In all my years of preaching and teaching and studying God's word, I, I, I believed I had somewhat of a grasp of the gospel. And for years when I read this parable and the guy forgiven the debt, I would say, oh, Lord, thank you because you've forgiven my debt. But then we see the master all of a sudden saying, oh, you didn't forgive your brother. You now have to pay your whole debt off. And I got to be honest with you, sat there going, Lord, help. That doesn't seem to match up with the rest of the scripture. And the more I began in time, God began to show me this matches exactly up with the rest of the scripture. You see, I came to realize that this man, even though his debt had been forgiven, never received it. Because, folks, if you really understand what God has done for you, you'll have no problem forgiving everybody else the fact that they took your parking space or sat in your seat. I already heard a couple of people tonight saying, that's my seat. <laughs> they were joking, thank the Lord. They were joking. But folks, let me just tell you, I began to realize this man had been forgiven, but he never received it. You see, at the moment that Jesus died on the cross, he has forgiven the sins of the whole world. They've been paid for. But you, as we just began to see, if you don't believe it and receive it, you're still under condemnation. Even though his debt had been forgiven, the man didn't receive it. He went off and wouldn't forgive his brother, which manifested that he really didn't. And that's, that's what you're going to see. That's going to help us a lot, too, because if you were reading along with us tonight as we started off, didn't Paul say some wonderful, awesome promises if you remain steadfast? Why does Paul make all these awesome promises and then say if? Well, if we have time, we'll get there. But let's just keep this in mind. Jesus said it's possible to be forgiven and not receive it. And therefore, if you don't receive it, I'm going to make you pay for your own debt yourself. By the way, folks, that's why hell is eternal. The Bible says that Jesus himself described hell as a place where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. They, the smoke of their burning comes up before God forever and ever and ever. You want to know why hell's eternal? It's actually very simple. Because everyone in hell has said, God, I don't want to receive your payment for my sin. I want to pay for it myself. God says, go right ahead. You never, ever, ever will. And that's why you'll be paying for it for eternity. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in Jesus will have eternal life. Oh, he didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but actually to go pay for the sins of the world. So the world would be saved through him. Whoever does not believe is condemned already. There are those who are in Christ and those who are still children of Satan. It's just the way the Bible teaches. That's why Jesus said to the Pharisees, even though they're religious leaders, your father's the devil. So, folks, you either have received this forgiveness that has been paid for or you haven't received it. And if you haven't received it, if you were to keep reading in John chapter three, uh, this is what he says. He says, here's the verdict. <laughs> you don't get to wait for the jury to come back. Here's the verdict. You're condemned if you don't believe. Let me show you a couple others. Go to first John chapter four, verses 14 and 15. 
And some of you saying, why don't you just do all the first Johns together? That wouldn't be as much fun. First John chapter four, verses 14 and 15. Listen again to what the scripture says. John says, and we, verse 14 of 1 John 4, have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Listen, verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. By the way, that word confess is the Greek word homologeo, which means to say the same thing or to agree with God. God says, you need my forgiveness, you need my payment for your sin. Whoever agrees with him says, yes, I do, and receives it. Those are the ones that God abides in them and, he, and, 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 and they in him. Go to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, verses 44 through 50. <clears throat> and Jesus cried out. And said, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I don't judge him. For I didn't come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Do you see what Jesus is saying? He said, look, I've come as a light to the world. I've come to give you revelation, understanding, insight, whatever term you want to use. I don't come as a judge. I came to save the world. Oh, there will be a day of judgment. And the measure that God uses will be what I've said, what you've heard. By the way, if the measure that God uses is what God has said, whether we understand how he does it or not doesn't make a difference. Everybody will know what God has said. Plain and simple. Plain and simple. This is why... Paul says that even though God reconciled the world to himself through Christ, we must be reconciled to God. I want you to see that. This is one of my favorite passages. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and look at verses 18 through 21. Mm-hmm. No, what, what do you, what, okay, I, I'm going to answer that question, but I'm going to ask you a question first. What are the words that you think that he's referring to in that passage? Mm -hmm. In that passage there. Look at the context. What is he talking about? He's talking about believing in him. I mean, for example, in John chapter 6, verses uh, 28 and following, the Jews went running up to Jesus and they said, What must we do to do the works that God has, it requires? You know what Jesus said? Believe in the one that he sent. When he talks about whoever obeys my words, he's talking about believing in him. Now, once we have entered into a relationship through faith in Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God will then work with us on obedience to the rest of the stuff. And some of us get there, some of us don't, some of us get closer, you know what I'm saying? But when he, Jesus is talking about whoever obeys my commandments, he's not talking about the Ten Commandments. He's talking about what he's been saying, what he's been issuing verbally to everyone 
And that's what's so clear in John chapter uh, 6, verse 28, where he says, What must we do to do the works that God requires? Jesus said, Believe in the one that he sent. What about the rich man, too? Like yeah, well, again. Well, okay, well, let me clarify the rich man. Rich man runs up and says, What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus, knowing full well that not everyone who's drawn truly responds, everybody's drawn, not everybody responds. Let me put it to you this way In order for someone to believe and to be saved, First of all, God has to draw them. And I believe God draws everyone in some way, shape, or form at some time. Second thing that has to happen over is someone to be saved. Not only is the fact that God draws them, but they must respond in believing faith. But how do we come to understand our need for a Savior according to the Scriptures? Does anybody know? What has God sent to us to show us our need of a Savior? Ah, uh, yes, but I heard it over here. The law. God has given us his commandments to show us that we can't keep them. Once you realize, look, I can't keep his commandments. Now you're ready for the good news. See, a lot of us who have been taught to go evangelize have been taught to go tell everybody the good news. Jesus died for your sins. We got a problem. We live in a world today that the world don't think they got sin. You talk to a lot of people today, you say, if you died, would you go to heaven? Yeah, I think so. How come? I'm a pretty good person. I haven't really done a whole lot of bad. Well, I got good news. Jesus died for your sins. They don't think they're a sinner. So what does Jesus do when the rich man comes? He understands, hey, this guy wouldn't even be coming to me unless my father began to draw him. Romans chapter 3, verse 10 says there's no one righteous. Verse 11 says there's no one who even seeks God unless the spot father's begun his work in their heart. So his father's begun his work in this man's heart for him to come to me. Before I share with him the good news, I got to help him understand the bad news. So what does Jesus do? He just gives him the law. He says, you know what the commandments are. Go keep the commandments. And this young man says, probably propping himself up, I have since my youth. And I always jokingly picture Jesus under his breath going, liar, that's one. <laughs> because the Bible says there's no one who's righteous, not even one. There's no one who will be declared righteous by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Jesus says to him, um, go keep the law. The guy says, I have. Jesus knows full well that that's not true. But this young man doesn't realize that yet. So a lot of people have missed this. When Jesus says, great, all you got to do now is sell everything you have and give to the poor and come follow me. All he's done is repackage the law and give it back to him in a different form. Because remember, Jesus was asked, what's the greatest of all the commandments? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. And number two, love your neighbor as yourself. This sums up the law and the prophets. Jesus says to this young man, you've been able to keep the whole law. That's awesome. That's impressive. This should be simple for you then. I've summed up the whole law into two things. Love the Lord your God with everything you have, your neighbor as yourself. If you're able to keep the whole law since your youth, why don't you go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, because that'll be the neighbor part, and come follow me. That's the God part. And the young man goes away sad. All Jesus was doing was showing him his condition. He leaves it to us as to whether or not we're going to respond. So the commandment, that Jesus is talking about in a lot of these passages is simply believing that he is who God says he is and that we need him to cover our sins, not our own righteousness. Well, From there, God takes care of the other stuff over time for his children. Yes, ma'am. Jesus was pointing out all of physical, horizontal relationships with fellow man. Mm -hmm. When he says, go sell everything. Now, that's total the first four commandments. Oh, yeah. You know, Definitely, yeah. And, and most people, most most people who don't think they have sin focus on the last six instead of the first four. Right. Yep. That's right. 
Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Look at verses 18 through 21. Paul says, all this is from God who through Christ. What's that next word? Is that past tense? Sure is. Who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling who? The world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Do you see it? God was in Christ reconciling the whole world to himself. On God's side of the ledger, sin's been paid for. There is no need anymore of a sacrifice for sin. Our message is this. God's paid for your sin already. You need to be reconciled to God. How do we become reconciled to God? Through faith. Believing the message of the gospel. Our need of a Savior and that the only one that could do it and already has done it is Jesus. All right? For our sake, He made Him to be, be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. All right, let, let me ask you to let this one sink in for a minute because this verse here we can quote, but I don't know many of us have allowed the truth of it to just really sink in. Did Jesus ever sin? No, no but how did He have all of our sin then? It was imputed. It was by God. He put our sin on him. Right. He didn't do anything. God put our sin, the sin of the whole world on Christ. How are you and I righteous then? Not by anything we do, but because in the same way that God took the sin of the world and put it on Christ, he's taking the righteousness of Christ and imputing it to us. I am, you are, we are declared righteous because of Christ. It's only through the Holy Spirit we can even believe that. Exactly. You can't even fully grasp it until the Spirit begins to help you understand it. But one of the things you're going to have to do is to stop falling back into that fleshly idea of I need to do more to be more righteous. <laughs> All of sin was put on Jesus. All of Christ's righteousness has been given to us. Christians need to learn to live out of that understanding and stop trying to do it. That's why the whole book of Galatians is saying, you began in the spirit. <laughs> why are you trying to perfect yourself in the flesh? Go for it. That's one of the many hooks that the devil uses, for sure. Yes, sir. How about Christians that will tell you the reason that they're saved is I accept that Christ yeah, well, again, we've we got to be careful about uh, getting caught up on words because for some people, like, for example, when my wife and I were first married, she would use the term, she'd say, I'm upset. And I'd be like, what have I got to do to fix it? Because in my definition, upset was a big thing. And she broke a nail. And her that was, that she was upset, she broke a nail. That didn't make, a, didn't make sense to me. And there are terms I use it. So we have, but there are some people who say, don't use the word accept or don't receive. The main thing is this, do you Believe that what Jesus did covers you. Have you received it by faith? And so, you know, there, there are people out there that are getting caught up on which word you use and which word you don't use. And I tell people, stay off of all that, because for us people who speak English, which is a sloppy language as it is, 
uh, we can get caught up on the wrong word. The issue is, do you believe it? If he received sin, wouldn't he be now unable to communicate with the Father? You know, if he spent three days in hell. Oh, he didn't spend three days in hell. You, where does the Bible say he spent three days in hell? Where does it say that in the Bible? You're quoting the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed says that he descended into hell, but the Bible doesn't say he descended into hell. What, is the scripture, what does the Scripture teach? Jesus said, today you'll be with me where? In paradise. How could the thief on the cross be with him in paradise if he's got to spend three days in hell? On top of that, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Oh, yeah, the Bible talks about how he went and preached to the spirits in prison. But, folks, the Bible doesn't say that Jesus suffered in hell. Because if Jesus suffered in hell for three days... He couldn't have said, it is finished. He would have said, I got three more days and then it'll be finished. We've believed a lot of stuff that has been taught over the years by the church that's not in the Bible. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. <laughs> he didn't descend into hell and suffer. He suffered on the cross. He experienced a separation from the Father at that moment is when he experienced the hell for us, the separation from the Father. This is the part that i got to be honest with you. I'll never understand it. Maybe when we get to heaven one day it'll make sense. I don't know. But how God can separate himself from himself. But if you look at Jesus all through his life, he said, Father this, Father that, Father this, Father that. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. But at that moment that he experienced separation from the Father, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yet when it was paid for and all done, after he said it's finished to Telestai, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, the relationship. Somehow, some way, in that moment on the cross, Jesus experienced the separation from the Father for us. And folks, don't try to figure it out. It'll hurt you. <laughs> Is there not a difference between my spirit being immediately with the Lord and the fellowship of the body? Oh, his body. His, his body was in the tomb. His body was in the tomb for three days, but his spirit, who he really is, is was with the Father. All right, don't get me derailed. We'll never get there. We'll be in Colossians for the rest of the time. And I'm praying, listen closely. I'll just give you a commercial. I'm praying about teaching the book of Revelation next. No promises. I'll do it if God tells me to. I don't care how many of you all vote. All right. I'm going to read to you real quickly something that I found that's along this line. Uh, there's a, a friend of mine. His name is Ron Herod, and he has a ministry called Rima. Ron Herod Evangelistic Ministry. And just a neat man who just has a heart for sharing the gospel across the globe, especially in parts of the world where uh, they don't have seminaries and stuff like that. And he, wrote, he writes a devotional that I get, and, and a couple days ago he wrote this. He said, uh, in one garden, Eden, the first Adam disobeyed and brought sin on the human race. He took from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The second Adam, Jesus, settled the issue in another garden, Gethsemane. Jesus settled the issue in prayer and hung on Calvary's tree to pay for your sins and mine. By one man's disobedience, sin entered the human race. We all understand that because Adam sinned, every person born into the human family has inherited the nature of sin. The Bible is not teaching that God is punishing the human race for one man's sin, but that the nature of sin entered the human race through one man. Now, that's the bad news. The worst news is that this sin separates you from God forever. But here's the good news. The Bible also says that another man took upon himself the sin of the human race and put it away, an infinitely more profound revelation. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26. Write that down and go look at that one. That's the one I didn't give you, but it's another one that talks about how once for all. Hebrews 9, 26. And Romans chapter 5, verse 12 tells us that this sin 
has brought death and it has spread to all men. There are three kinds of death. There is, of course, physical death when the body is separated from the spirit. There is an eternal death when a lost soul perishes in hell, separated from God forever. But there's also a spiritual death, which is the state of a person outside of Jesus Christ. Adam's sin passed along to the human race has bought, sorry, brought about this spiritual death to all humanity. Jesus looked at something we don't see, namely the nature of man. Sin is something I am born with and cannot touch. Only God touches sin through redemption. It is through the cross of Christ that God redeemed the entire human race from the possibility of damnation through the heredity of sin. How can we be delivered from this body of sin and death? We are given this glorious message in Romans 5.10. We are really not saved by believing and repenting. Listen closely to what he's saying here. We're really not saved by believing and repenting. These are our personal responses and are the signs that I realize what God has done through Christ Jesus. It is his death and resurrection by which I'm saved. The danger is for me to put the emphasis on the effect instead of on the cause. Is it my obedience that makes me right with God? It is never that. I am made right with God because prior to all of that, Christ died. When I turn to God and by faith accept what God reveals, miraculous atonement by the cross of Christ instantly places me in a right relationship with God. The wonderful salvation that God gives us is not based on human logic, but on the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. Sinful men and women can be changed into new creations, not through repentance or their belief, but through the wonderful work of God in Christ Jesus, which preceded all of our experience. This is when the supernatural becomes natural to us through the miracle of God's salvation. Then there is the realization of what Christ, Jesus Christ has already done. Our response of faith and repentance activates what he has already done on the cross. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. The best news is that this new relationship can begin now. Today is the day of salvation. Adam's tree is overcome by Calvary's tree. All right. Let me show you a couple of the things that kind of along this line show how this this gift that Jesus has already paid for has to be received by faith. Go to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 41. Isn't that a cool verse? Hebrews 9, 26. Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 41. Peter's just finished being used of the Spirit, full of the Spirit, under the control of the Spirit, preaching at Pentecost. And says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. That's the Spirit's work. And said to Peter and all the rest of his apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. With many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added to that day 3,000 souls. Now, we've had some people try to take this passage and say that if you're not baptized, you're not saved. That's not what the passage is teaching. But you have to understand, back in that day, nowadays what we tend to typically do is, if the preacher's preaching the gospel in a church service or you're sharing it with somebody, and they want to respond, we say to them, pray this prayer with me, Lord, I believe and I receive, whatever. 
Back then, they didn't have them pray a prayer. They said, if you re receive this word, you believe this message that's been preached, you get baptized. That was your way of identifying. You notice the, the Ethiopian eunuch, when he meets with Philip in Acts chapter 8, after hearing the gospel, says, well, here's water. What keeps me from being baptized? That was how they made their public profession of their faith. Nowadays, we have them come forward, pray a prayer, and we say, hallelujah, this person's saved, and then we have them baptized, and there's nothing horrible about that. But back in that day, the baptism was their way of receiving it. That was their prayer, if you will. All right, now go to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Most of you probably could quote this one for us, but I want you to look at it again. Sometimes we can get so familiar with a passage of Scripture that we quoted for years that the depth of it... Well, let's just keep reading them over and over so God can continue to take us deeper and deeper into what's really here. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through what? And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. How many people have you run into over the years that say, I, I know I'm going to heaven. I was baptized. Be careful. You think you're going to heaven because you were baptized. That's not what the Bible teaches. I believe what Jesus said. That's the only way I can look you in the eye and tell you I know I'm going to heaven because I believe what Jesus has said. His word has said that if I believe, and as one person said, if I could believe anymore, I would. I believe. I believe. In Romans chapter 5, Ron Herod in his passage that we just read, uh, quoted this passage. I want you to see it. Romans chapter 5. Listen to verses 1 through 11. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, you're already justified, you're already righteous because of what Jesus has done if you've received this by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope, or the future, if you will, heaven, and the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings now, knowing that our suffering produces endurance, and that endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope doesn't put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who He has given to us. For while we were still weak, by the way, let me stop real quick. Remember back when I was telling you there were three things you got to do to be saved, or three things that happened, a better way to put it, to be saved? One, you got to be drawn by the Spirit of God. Two, you got to be responding in saving faith, or the Greek word is apostéo, which is a believing faith. And the third thing I never got to, I just realized I didn't, uh, God has to seal the deal with His Spirit. If He doesn't seal the deal with His Spirit, even though you were drawn, you didn't respond in believing faith. There's a passage, actually, and you can look at it later, write it down, John chapter 2, verses 23 and 24. The Scripture says that Jesus did all these miracles and they believed in His name, yet Jesus would not entrust Himself to them because they knew their hearts. Did you catch that? They believed, but Jesus knew it wasn't real belief. That's why the Bible says the seeds fall on the rocky soil and they spring up. Sure looks like salvation, but when trouble comes, you'll find out that they truly weren't saved. We're going somewhere because in Colossians, Paul said, if you continue in the faith. Seed fell on the thorny soil, sprung up, sure looked like salvation, fooled a whole lot of folks, maybe even you or me. But the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of wealth choked it. And the Bible says that person never really was saved. That's why in the book of Hebrews, it says that the, 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 the rain falling on the land oftenly, often, that's a good word, isn't it? Often, and then how the soil responds shows whether or not it received the rain. So, folks, I want you to understand 
the Bible shows that over time will we be able to really know whether or not you truly have been born again. Not because you prayed a prayer, not because you were baptized, not because you said you believe, but has he sealed the deal with his spirit? Because he who has begun the good work in you will finish it. In Romans chapter 5, keep going in verse 6. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to even die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified, how? By his blood, much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God, for saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were his enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now. With that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now what? Received reconciliation. The message of the gospel is this. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. You now need to be reconciled to God. Receive it. That's why, as we talked about last week, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, Jesus said the only sin not already covered, not forgiven, is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And that's simply when the Spirit of God draws you to salvation and you reject it. That's the only sin not covered already by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's why in the book of Hebrews, the Bible talks about those who reject this gospel. And I think it's in chapter 10 that he actually says this. He says, they have trampled underfoot the blood of the covenant which sanctifies them. Now, that's given a lot of people belly aches over the years. They're like, wait a minute. How could someone be sanctified and then be rejected? We know the Bible teaches you don't lose your salvation. If you've received it, you don't lose it. Well, Jesus' blood, as blood of the covenant, paid for the sins of the whole world. And if you reject it, <laughs> you have now rejected the blood of the Son of God. That's what the Hebrew writer says, doesn't it? He says, oh, remember when God gave the law and the people were afraid to even go near the mountain? We're afraid they're going to die. <laughs> How much more will we be judged? Those who have trampled under the foot the blood of the covenant, which has already paid for their sins. The son of God went through all that and paid for your sin. And you say, no, thanks. Never mind. Folks, you don't want to be in the shoes of those people who reject this gospel. Yes, sir. I've heard this trampling also <clears throat> being discussed as once you're saved and you continue in the sin, that's trampling the blood. They can people are saying that, but it doesn't match up with the, with the scripture. The Bible talks about the fact that we're already covered by the blood of Christ. Now, if we as Christians walk in this and I say true Christians who have been sealed by the spirit, walk in continual disobedience. The Bible says he'll take you home early. He'll. Well, how did he say it to the church? He said in First Corinthians chapter 11, he said some are sick and some are dead because they're taking the Lord's Supper incorrectly. Also, at the same time, we see in the book of Revelation, Jesus writes to a couple of churches and says, I'm caused them to suffer on a bed of suffering, you know, and their time's about to run out. I'm going to take them home early. It's bad teaching for them to take it out of context. Again, you guys need to know what the book says because there's so many people saying stuff that makes sense in our logical minds, but it doesn't match up with the whole of Scripture. And I, I'll be honest with you, over the years, because of what God's done in my head and in my heart, when people bring stuff to me, immediately I have to put it through the filter of all these verses that are in my head. And most of the time I'll go, nope, doesn't work, that doesn't work because of this, 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 and this. I understand it, that you're not going to get to that point, but that's why God gave you pens. <laughs> Write it down. All right, let's go to verse 22 in the time that we have left here. Go back to Colossians. I, I forgot what book we were studying here, but it's Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, look at verses 21 and following. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled 
in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Uh, folks, let me just tell you, for the sake of time, I'm going to give you a bunch of scriptures. Actually, I want to come back to that next time. So I'm going to jump over the blameless, holy and blameless. We'll come back to that next week. And let's just deal with this last question here of why, if this is all said, and we're going to look at how his desires to make us holy and blameless. We'll come back to that next week. Why does Paul then say, if you continue in the faith? And we've touched on it a little bit already. Uh, look at verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, in which I, Paul, became minister. Why does Paul, after saying that he's reconciled us, we've been reconciled, his desire is to make us holy and blameless. Next week we'll go into the study of that because that's when we're going to get into reconciling all things. We'll get into that next week. Why then does Paul then say when he says you've been reconciled, if you remain steadfast? Jim, you've been telling us for years that if I'm truly saved, I can't lose it. If I've truly been born again and sealed by the Spirit of God, God will never reject me. He'll never leave me nor forsake me. I'm sealed by the Spirit of God. Why does Paul then say if? The same reason that the Hebrew writer over and over talks about how we've been sealed, yet at the same time says, watch out. You've been, you've been given this eternal life. Watch out. Why? Because of this fact that the writers know that even though they're speaking to a group of believers, not everyone in that group is a believer. Let me ask you a question. Why did Jesus choose Judas to be one of his 12 apostles? Did Jesus, was he fooled? I mean, you know, some people have it hard to judge. Did Jesus not know that Judas wasn't ever going to be one of them? Then why, when Jesus spent the whole night in prayer and came down and designated 12 to be his apostles, there were many more disciples than that, always many more. Why did he choose of the 12 one of them that he knew would never be one of them? Well, definitely to fulfill the scripture on the betrayal, but there's more to it. Keep going. What? All right. Well, everything God does pleases him because he's pretty proud of himself and has every right to be. How about the fact that the Bible's showing us the whole idea of there's going to be those among us who are never of us, even though we're fooled. I mean, let's be honest. When they sent him out two by two, someone got paired up with Jews. And he sent them out to perform miracles and heal and raise the dead. And guess what? We don't see anywhere where someone came back and said, Jesus, can I talk to you for a second? You, uh, you paired me up with Judas and he couldn't do it. Bible actually says in Matthew 7, verse 21 following, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons? And I'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. Jesus says in the parable of the weeds and the wheat, he said that the, the enemy sowed weeds among the wheat. And they came and said, Master, didn't you sow good seed in your field? He goes, yeah, my enemy's done this. Well, do you want us to go separate who's who? He said, no. Leave that to the end. You'll do damage to the good. If you're trying to separate who's saved and who's not, it is not our job to try to figure out whether or not Niggy's saved or not. I am. <laughs> Just in case anybody's curious, she'll let you know. And we know, we know. So, hey, hey, Fred, we'll ask you later. All right. But, but uh, no, seriously, but we shouldn't make it our job to figure out whether or not we think you are or you aren't. But keep in mind. Well, I guess the best way to do it is let the scripture talk. Go to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. Listen to verses 18 through 25. And folks, it can't be any more clear than this. 1 John chapter 2 verse 18, he says, Children, it is the last hour. 
And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. By the way, for those of you that understand where, where I'm coming from on this, this is one of the further evidences of the fact that the church age comes to an end before the tribulation period. When he said this is the last hour, he means last time period. Because the next time period is going to be the tribulation period. This is the last part of this one. It's the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One. And you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you don't know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. All right. Now here's, look closely what he says here. No one, uh, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you or remains in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us eternal life. Folks, you know what the Bible teaches? The only way we're going to know who really is and who really isn't, it's when we get there. That's why all through the scriptures you'll see you have this confidence and I can make you this promise that if you're in Christ, you're his, you're signed, sealed and delivered. Uh, but for those in the group that need to hear this warning, the evidence of the fact that you're truly saved will be it stays. You won't be the seed that falls on the rocky soil and spring up for a time. But when trouble comes, you go away because God disappointed you. You won't be one of those ones that spring up and sure look like the thorny soil like you believe. But then after a while, the things of this world and the deceitfulness of wealth will choke you and you run off after that stuff. Folks, we've all been wrestling with. But I really thought they were a believer. I saw God do stuff in them. I saw. Yep. But the only evidence of real salvation is over time. Oh, that's actually good for some of us who have had some periods where we didn't look like we were his. The fact that you're back and he's finishing that good work in you should be an encouragement to you. Yes, sir. You, so you, you agree that it's, it's dangerous where pastors will say you're saved because you said a prayer. Yep. But at the same time, if they, you, I have no problem telling them if you believe because that's what the Bible says. I'm not going to say you're saved because you said a prayer. What I tell people is this, if you say you believe, again, we got to be real careful on getting caught up on how we word things because too many people fight with each other on how we word stuff. Just leave it at the basic children level stuff. If you believe, God said you'll have eternal life. By the way, um, go to Acts chapter 11. We got one minute. <laughs> Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 23. This is always the fastest hour of my week. Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 23. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, remember he had been stoned, traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on com coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was, was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. How many people do we know over the years who think they're okay because they prayed a prayer? 
because they walked an aisle. And then they go off and live however they choose. That's why some people don't like the doctrine, the biblical doctrine of the fact that if you've truly been saved and sealed by the Spirit of God, you're eternally secure. Because they look at these people who claim once saved, always saved, and live as they are. Again, don't let situations change you from the truth of the Scripture. The Scripture teaches that if you have been sealed by the Spirit, and those of you who have a Spirit, you know who it is. Why? Well, how do we know? Well, it says in Romans chapter 8, verse 15, His Spirit testifies with our spirit that we're His children. You've heard me say it before. How do I know I'm going to heaven when I die? Because his spirit lives within me and I know it. Well, how do you know? It's like chocolate ice cream. <laughs> Have you ever had chocolate ice cream? Yeah. Tell me what it tastes like. <laughs> no, seriously, tell me what chocolate ice cream tastes like. like, like yeah, exactly. You can't tell me, can you? I could question whether or not you've ever had chocolate ice cream because you can't tell me what it tastes like. What's the only way you can get me to know what it tastes like? You say, here's the spoon. Try it for yourself. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And God has made this salvation thing in this way. I have been sealed by the Spirit of God. He lives within me, and I know it. I just can't tell you how I know it. The only way I can say is, here's the spoon. His name is Jesus. Try him for yourself. And so, folks, let's stop trying to outthink it. Let's stop trying to be smarter than God. Let's just believe that the Spirit of God's going to do His work in this whole world. Everyone's going to be drawn. We want to be used in that process. Don't fall into the mindset of if you don't tell them they may never hear your God's way bigger than that and he don't need you. Yet at the same time, we have a great message to share with the world. Jesus has already paid for your sins. Oh, if you don't believe this, you're already condemned. Don't wait until the judge time. The verdict already is in. But if you'll believe, if you'll believe and receive this gift by faith, and don't try to fix it any other way, but just put all your eggs in one basket in Jesus Christ. God will give you his spirit confirming that you're his. And you won't be able to tell anybody how you know either. But you'll have the good news and you'll share it with folks. We're going to come back next week. and We're going to look at the fact that God's desire is that he present us to him blameless and holy. And what this reconciling all things has to do. I can't wait to share it with you. So hurry back next week. We'll see you then. Father, again, thank you so much for what you've done tonight. Thank you for your word. I thank you that I haven't even gotten to the, the, the whole list of all the places that talk about this doctrine of the fact that at that moment you died for the sins of the whole world. Lord, may we not get in debates and fights with our brothers who think that you only died for some. Lord, just may we be re ready to recognize that people, when they try to teach certain things, are using human logic versus just the truth of your word. And so, Father, put it in our hearts. Put your word in our hearts, burn it into our hearts and into our brains. And Lord, may it make an effect on us to the point that we'd be able to recognize truth from error because you live within us and your word is in our heart. And so, Lord, bring us back again next week if you choose not to come get us between now and then, because I know everybody in this room that knows you is saying that's OK if you do. But if you don't, we look forward to what you're going to do next week in our study. We pray this in your name. Amen.